0: Our guest today is Dr. Willie Soon, an astrophysicist and geoscientist. Dr. Soon is a leading authority on the relationship between solar phenomena and global climate. His discoveries challenge computer modelers and advocates who consistently underestimate the influence of the sun on cloud formation, ocean currents and wind that cause climate change. Dr. Soon is an astrophysicist at the Solar, Stellar, and Planetary Sciences Division of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He earned bachelor's and master's degrees in science and a PhD in aerospace engineering from the University of Southern California. In 2018, he founded the Center for Environmental Research and Earth Sciences in order to tackle a wider range of issues and topics without fears or prejudices. We'll include a link to this group when the program goes to podcast on Monday. Dr. Soon has received numerous scientific and other awards, for example, the Courage in the Defense of Science Award from the George Marshall Institute. He has published 102 refereed papers, at least 37 book chapters and magazine articles, and dozens of invited presentations at various universities and international and national meetings. I'd like to conclude my introduction of Dr. Soon by quoting Freeman Dyson of Star Trek fame, of course. He's also one of the most important scientists in history. He said the following, The whole point of science is to question accepted dogmas. For that reason, I respect Willie Soon as a good scientist and a courageous citizen. So, with support from someone as famous as Freeman Dyson, we're certainly fortunate to have you on the show, Willie.
1: This is so exciting for me to have Willie on the show. Willie has been a mentor of mine in the climate fields for over 20 years. There isn't any question that he is considered one of the top half dozen climate scientists in the world by everybody in the field. So it is really our honor to have him on the show and to have our listeners get a chance to understand the complexity of the science he does and the common sense that he approaches it with. But we're going to tackle a lot of problems beyond just the, the numbers today and I think it's important to understand how much he has suffered by being true to his science at all costs. But he's likely the most maligned climate scientist in the world. Pretty much as many people know him for all the attacks that he has suffered as for his great science. How, how did this begin that you became a target for the left trying to tear down real climate science and make the world think that we're doomed because of emissions of carbon dioxide.
3: Well, thank you, Tom and Jay, for this very kind introduction and I guess the invitation to do this interview. As you probably know, (laughs) that despite all the works and all the really many, many hours of thinking and, and serious about, you know, what should we get out of this Craziness on the idea that human by emitting carbon dioxide that we're going to destroy this planet that we all love, and to have Freeman Dyson standing behind some of the things that we are willing to <laughs> stand by in terms of what science it should be and how climate science is so utterly corrupted. So I'm extremely proud, of course, to hold this this torch that we shall keep the lights on the signs of the light of science on. And yes, indeed, I've been very much maligned and treated as almost as you can use the word science uh, in in the area of climate science or even in solar physics, actually. But I've been doing this out of my deep, deep passion for science. I'm very, very much uh, interested in science as soon as I can feel any consciousness when I was born. So it did start very early. For most of you may not know, I already by this stage have studied climate science and of course, solar physics are uh, close to 32 years now. And of course, at this uh, prestigious institution that shall not be named, I would like to mention that I have a new uh, scientific affiliation at Hungary. It's the Institute of US uh, Physics and Space Science. So it's another one of those very nice institutions that value science. So I was very proud to be affiliated with such an institution. Wow, so yeah. I, I surely have places to go. There's no doubt about it. But I took a lot of... Uh, what you call professional sacrifices by not getting being recognized for all the works that I do that I'm quite sure by now that if by year 2050 or 2100, people look back and ask who did the best work on, let's say, Sunspot studies in year 2021. I am quite sure. I am hundred percent sure. No one will miss some of the papers that we wrote with my colleague, Victor Velasco and, another very fine uh, sunspot historian by the name of Douglas Hoyt. Uh, so we have done some serious work, but it all started because when I got my postdoc position at the Harvard Smithsonian center for astrophysics, invited by Sally Balunas, my dear colleagues whom I think Tom know very well. Oh, yeah. I, I was uh, reluctant to go because I wanted to stick around with my thesis advisor at university of Southern California doing the, non-equilibrium plasma physics problem that we were so engaged in actually. It was a project of studying hypersonic plane actually, right, I to to try to talk about all the intermediate physics, you know. Science becomes very interesting when you study something in between because in fully ionized plasma you have some very serious uh, answer to that and in let's say fluid dynamics there are also something quite clear that you can do about it but I'm studying something in between so it's partially ionized plasma. So I did a lot of very serious work. That's why I got recognized and be, I guess, invited to be a postdoc at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And when I started this work, it really was pure. I mean, by now, it's still the passion never left me, but I immediately noticed by 1990. So I started in 1991. By 1992, we have a seriously groundbreaking work by learning the fact that the sun irradiance could change by at least a factor of four from what was being observed by the current uh, satellite project, which means it can be 0.4% change, which is really seriously big. And it mm. would explain all the little ice age and everything. So we thought it was very exciting and such a powerful physical constraint. So we submitted to nature and politics immediately, I knew, interfered. It took 18 months. Nature usually reject your paper in a week. But in 18 months, involving Sir John Maddox, involving so many editors, six reviewers, so on and so forth, and we finally give up. It was a very illegitimate rejection. But we immediately get it to publish within a week in the most prestigious, prestigious journal in the astrophysical sciences. It's called the Astrophysical Sciences Journal uh, Letters. You know, was uh, the editor, famous editor, Subramanyam Chandra from University of Chicago, who got a yeah. Nobel Prize because of his work on White Dwarf. Uh, In any case, I realized all this politics very early on. So I stay away. So if anybody like you invited me to give a talk or explain what I do and all that, I say, no, thank you. So by 1997, you know, I got involved in this uh, petition project by the Oregon Institute of Science and Medicine. I was reluctant too, but then I I lent my hand because people that involved like Arthur Robinson, Sally Balunas. So we worked very hard to produce a paper on what's wrong with this current paradigm on CO2 global warming by providing evidence that really doesn't even come close to supporting, in fact, reject the notion completely, even at that stage by 1998. So one thing after another, by 2001, I produced a very serious paper. As you can see, I, I did all this just out of curiosity. Yeah, I should say my trouble begins because of curiosity. I wanted to know what? For example, climate model, they keep claiming that climate model can do this and that, right? Including making quick pigs to flies and all that, so on and so forth. I say, well, let me check. So I check, and I reached the conclusion that, that my paper was so important that it was even getting a great Professor Kirill Kondratyev of uh, St. Petersburg University. He was a rector of that university. So you all may imagine how big that, that title. He took notice of me and we have a lot of exchanges. So we started to collaborate on this paper. So we got this paper published in 2001. Immediately we got, uh, the, by then I knew this our trouble begins. So IPCC people couldn't leave me alone. So it was the first in the history of the journal that they have a comments and reply. They commented and published in 2003 by David Carelli, all those guys from IPCC Gangster. So they come in, we reply nicely. It's fine, right? Then I got into real serious trouble in 2003 when you all know that famous uh, IPCC hockey stick temperature history that was uh, what you call invented single-handedly by Professor Michael Mann, right? Oh, Who's, yeah. uh, who tried to portray the, the climate history, the temperature history of the Earth, from 1000 AD to 1900 AD as the handle of a stick, and then boom, because men come along. That's that's the that's the narrative. By the way, it's all narrative driven science. It's not science at all. So the blade shut up because of human emission of CO two. It's a serious, serious, <laughs> questionable conclusion. And it was so prominent as as you know, it was featured in the third assessment report in 2001 multiple times. Okay. And I, but actually I did all this work in 2002, we published in January of 2003. So I was in parallel with uh, what you call the famous Canadian team, right? The the McIntyre and uh, McKittrick. These are the two brilliant Canadian, your fellow Canadian that that I truly admire. And they approached the problem from a different point of view, from, from the methodological point of view. I was approaching this from an empirical point of view. So I set out with the deepest goal to find all the paleo evidence available. This is clearly already 10 times more data set than Michael Mann has ever even had the border to look at. And then I assemble them all in one place. And then I look at it individually on the basis of how the proxy is in a natural units, which means without assumption that it all has to be connected to temperature. And then you mm-hmm. see whether the phenomenon of little ice age, which happens around, I would say 1300 to 1900 AD, and then Middle World War period, clearly from about 800 to about 1200 AD or so, but Middle World warm period, that is very well known in England and so on and so forth. But then the the gangster by Michael Mann and IPCC say that, oh, no, 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 it was not global. It's only in Greenland. It's only in uh, Europe. It's nothing more than that. But they forgot. The evidence are everywhere. (laughs) It's in the Alps of New Zealand. The glaciers was retreating. How is that possible? And then it's in Angkor What You all know about Cambodia. You know about Song Dynasty in China. This was proven beyond doubt in all those areas, right? And there are many more evidence, by the way, in Mongolia. And then you come to the South American forest. The forest was advanced by 100 miles at least. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, things like that. So I collected all of it. I just, just say, come on, man. Just write a paper on this and then try to report on this. And that time, there was already many more political in- interference. So to make it short, let me jump to 2001, 2002 2000- Three right 2007, I got curious. A Canadian biologist, wildlife biologist, who unfortunately died last year by accident because of the helicopter crash, this wildlife biologist of, of polar bear asked me to take a look can you help me in terms of this polar bear relationship with sea ice? So I get into another trouble by publishing papers on the polar bears, you know, the biology and polar bears, and uh, and then one thing leads to another. Y'all know I get into all kinds of trouble just simply by stating what I know and research the the results, by the way, to date, I haven't seen any serious rebuttal of any things that I published, which is always a curious thing, as you can imagine, because you know what, as a scientist, you only love to be proven wrong. You will never be unhappy or whining or so on and so forth about crying, oh, all they want is just destroy my data. As you know that my latest attempt is very, very serious. I'm trying to go and visit the hardest problem that never been done by all those people that have been paying have been paid billions and billions of dollars, I would say billions, that this is regarded the temperature record, the thermometer temperature record. So we have a preliminary review that we published already in this uh, 2021 in research and astronomy and astrophysics. and this is an invited review. and I think the paper is very well accepted now and it turns out that it came out the time where the IPCC six assignment, came out in August 6th. So we came out about a week or two weeks earlier than that. And uh, it was a pure coincidence. And people thought that, oh, I could time like this. No way, I couldn't arrange for any of this. So you can imagine. (laughs) The short answer is that I become so maligned because of curiosity. And I just- Willie, you know,
1: uh, to, to really put brackets around what you've said for our listeners, I think they will be surprised to know that the enemy, the the thieves that are trying to take over the world by eliminating fossil fuels, saying that it'll change the world as we know it, uh, they have long wanted to eliminate the sun as part of the reason for climate change. As absurd as that may sound, they want all the change to be man-caused and not have anything to do with the sun. Now, an average person of common sense finds that absolutely absurd. There isn't any question about it, but that actually is going on. And every one of these papers that you have uh, produced support the fact, you know, the sun is a critical part. The solar irradiance changes. There are all kinds of changes going on in the solar system that have been controlling climate change uh, since the beginning of of planet
3: Earth. Yes, indeed. I... This is why, why would you think I'll be so foolish <laughs> to basically spend all my 32 years really focused on trying to understand the sun, how it works. And of course, in the meantime, you want to learn also how the earth responds to it. I mean, it is a very, very difficult question, no doubt about it. And, and the, the evidence is extremely strong, if not irrefutable. I mean, it is so strong that I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to have to keep reminding all these IPCCs, uh, gangsters, sorry, I call them gangsters. They're not quite uh, scientists because they never are true to any hypothesis. There are no hypothesis involved. Every single one of them, it's about these people are funded by fossil fuel. These people are not scientists. They are not famous. They don't publish in peer review. It's all baloney. It doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to Will Harper. It doesn't apply to Chris Essex or Ross McLeod Trick and so on and so forth. All these good and great, honest scientists in some sense in the sense that it's so strange to use the word honest scientist because these people are not honest. That's the problem. They do belong to some fine uh, scientific institution, but all these scientific institutions become very, very corrupted. Let me put it simple. Let me explain. It's a very simple proposition. The way I want to explain this is that, by the way, this is part of the theme that I want to get across in my talk on Saturday on the reception with you, Jay. I want to express the view that Really, the simplest way to look at this Sun-Earth relationship is to understand it in terms of the seasonal climate. That's it. Finish. Mm-hmm. Because the Sun, we are forced to be by the gravitational forces of, of the Sun and the rest of the planets being perturbed around this orbit. We are revolving around the Sun. That's it. The season would not change. I mean, it would change, but then it will be, we will be stuck by that paradigm. So seasonal climate change because... No two summers are the same. No two winters are the same. No two springs are the same. See, each of the seasons plays certain kind of roles. Spring season is probably extremely important because the ice was about to start melting and then coming into the thing. So the albedo effects will be very important during that time, right? During winter, it's just basically frozen, no sunlight arriving there, right? So it will be yeah. other kind of processes between the, the stuff going from the equator to the pole region kind of problem. And then yeah. during the summer, as you can see, sunshine, it may even involve biological responses, obviously. So there are a lot of this very intricate kind of relationship, but it is proven beyond doubt that the whole system is governed by seasonal cycle. Even, even the equatorial sea surface temperature you would think that if the sun going past there twice, right, two times, because it had to go north and then go back to the south in the 23 degree region, right, the tropic, you know, the that you cross twice. So you would think that the response of the sea surface temperature will be biannual, like semi-annual. It's not. It's actually a whole seasonal annual cycle. So a lot of these kind of things that is not trivial. But the problem is that instead of thinking about this and then solving some of the problem, they have done nothing for almost as far as can see. For 32 years. Whereas I was the only one with dedicated scientists. You know what? I've been mean, lately by 2015, I started to engage in restudying the solution because people thought it's a simple problem that the Sun, Earth, with all these other planets, we can solve for all this planet. Newton law, no, that's it. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, one of the biggest story that I can tell you in this interview is that I strongly believe the solution that was produced in terms of the orbital solution of where the Earth is relative to the sun for, let's say, the last 10,000 years, 11,000 years, was totally inadequate. The last solution that formally produced was by André Berger of Louvain, And that paper was produced in 1978.
1: Now, one of the great things you have just done recently, and I want to know how you did it, you obtained 23 scientists from around the world to write a major paper, putting the lie to the ICCP fraudsters that have been putting out report year after year, so that what you have learned was you're not alone. You have intelligent colleagues around the world who, my understanding, were willing to drop their own individual research uh, to help you write a collective uh, paper, tell us
3: how you went about doing that. Thank you for calming me down. <laughs> but uh, yes, indeed, <laughs> uh, the, recently, that, like I say, I got into big trouble because I wanted to answer the question. If you want to study sun-climate connection, don't you think that we ought to have the best climate metric to use, which is the thermometer data? And what is the best sun uh, irradiance uh, measure to use? So we have invited some total of 21, excluding myself and Ronan Connolly, 21 co-authors from all over the world, 14 countries. And then with the paper that we wrote is multiple pages long. Uh, Hopefully it won't put people to sleep, but really people should read this because once you read this, I don't think you can unread this. So I encourage everybody to do that. It has 530 scientific references. We indeed went on this new idea. I I think it's a very important uh, paradigm, even for IPCC to do. Because again, I don't want to preach to the standard core that people just say, yeah, the sun, but then we really have to figure out how, right? And so we invited all these people to set aside our differences. We really do have differences, even among our skeptics, because some people will propose this mechanism. Some people say cosmic ray. I just say that let's all work together. Let's see what is the best scientific knowledge we have. The first thing we start was actually thermometer. Is those thermometer used by IPCC good enough? The short answer is absolutely not. Okay, this is how we demonstrate. Later. But but then we give IPCC the men, the doubt. Actually, benefit of the doubt again it's very important in science. So we call it steel Manning. So we we have this so-called adversarial collaboration. So we get a lot of these colleagues that do not necessarily agree with with us with myself or, or Ronan 100% even me and Ronan Connolly doesn't agree with it 100% in our own view so we put out this paper and we really work very hard on it it is an invited paper by by a very very the most prestigious uh, solar physicist in China who know me a, 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 a retired professor at the uh, Beijing astronomical observatory invited me to write this paper and i i kind of set it aside for several years actually it's been many years so I told him one of these days I was inspired. So me and Ronan started to do this and then we got all these authors on, really from 14 countries, which is very impressive in that sense. We, they all agree that, okay, we're going to write this paper, agree on most of the wordings and the basic concept and layout, all the review. And we did a very, I think we did a very good job. In fact, it's the best job that nobody can, no money can buy, really. Now, IPCC uh, chapter on this is just embarrassing, put it this way. You know, the current, even the best version that they claim. What IPCC, when they, when they saw this, uh, there's a very clever uh, journalist wrote an article on this in the Epoch Times. And he asked the IPCC what they think about our paper. IPCC, the only answer, first of all, they say that, oh, this uh, famous guy like NASA Goddard Institute director, Gavin Schmidt said that this paper is trash and should, no one should even waste time on this. That's, that's a fact, okay? That's mm-hmm. okay. Think about what a person like that say means. Then IPCC said, oh, no, this paper was uh, too late. It appeared, uh, let's say, in June or July of 2021 that, uh, you know what, it's been uh, not qualified to be considered on AR6. What they forgot about this this fact is that they immediately just show that IPCC report is immediately outdated, that they have not considered the science. They never invited us to contribute anything. They just simply don't want you to shut up and not say nothing. But I'm, (laughs) I'm as good as any scientist in this world on this topic. I mean, I've been researching this seriously for 32 years, okay? You ought to give some credibility, even though I may be stupid that it take me 32 years to do this, <laughs> but, but it is a very serious study. It's completely outdated. They don't realize how, how bad their statement is, by the way. And then they probably, again, pounding on their chest,
1: you know? Oh, hmm. this
3: paper. And it won't change the conclusion in the next, next report. They already say that too, in the seventh assessment. I'm sorry hmm. to run so far ahead, but these people are all over the place. The only thing they want to win is their rhetorical war. They are not interested in science seriously. All the scientists are essentially being misused by them, however sincere they are, or however sincere they, they believe that the CO2 can destroy the planet Earth or causing global warming and so on and so forth. Some may not go too extreme, but then I truly believe that the scientific community are being hooked, winged like this kind of prestigious. People just tend to go crazy when they get a press interview or get linked to some IPCC, I mean, the latest one that is a huge embarrassment for IPCC is this Nobel Prize in physics about two weeks ago, a week ago. that mm-hmm. when the IPCC and Nobel Prize was wrongly being credited to people who reliably produce a climate model that can reliably predict global warming, that's, that's something that I'm going to challenge in the, in the talk that I'm giving on Saturday. Mm-hmm. IPCC issue a press release. I mm-hmm. asked a simple question. What does that have to do with IPCC? <laughs> it's yeah, we just, we just really, tell really how it embarrassing.
0: We should just tell listeners this conference that you're speaking on on Saturday that's put on by the Heartland Institute. And if you go to heartland.org, people can learn more about it. And I presume it's going to be online so people can watch live. Is that right?
3: Yes, it is all on live. And then uh, all the tracks of the meeting, all the video will be live webcast. And if you go to the Heartland website, you will be able to see those things. Yeah, please. I encourage everyone to go to the Heartland uh, webpage and uh, all those things will be live webcast. So it's starting on uh, Friday evening about five o'clock, uh, not Las Vegas yeah. time. So eight yeah. o'clock in Boston time or Eastern coast, East coast. Yes.
0: Yeah, I got a question from uh, one of our supporters, which I hope both of you could address. Here's what he said. If we are correct and global warming is nothing to do with CO2, why is the US president and other politicians still spouting the old and disproven theories and presumably they have the right advice? Question mark. (laughs) So why are they doing it, do you think, Jay and Willie?
3: Can I take this crack? Because uh, since we start with Freeman Dyson, Freeman Dyson is a a master of not only physics, he's a master of language. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This this quote just cannot, I cannot stop remembering this. He said that the central mystery of climate science, right? It is not a scientific mystery, but a human mystery. How does it happen that the whole generation of scientific experts is blind to obvious facts? Because you can think about it, like I just say that in 2021, after 32 years, I start revisiting the problem of this thermometer record, that they claim that all the urban station won't affect the their temperature record while they included all this urban record. It is not even logical. They first of all do not have a methodology to, to, to do that. And we just show that, can we just try by removing the urban temperature station and then see what the record show. In fact, the record show completely different outlook. Mm. This is what we propose in our RAA uh, research in astronomy and astrophysics paper. Yes, this is actually, a, a sci- it's not a scientific problem. It's, it's really a human problem that a lot of these people are just so bought into this, that they thought that there's only one version of the temperature record that we should consider. We show that there's some combination of at least 34 version you can have in mm-hmm. that paper. And people still refuse to, to see it. But I, I have to tell let the reader know, we I, me and Ronan Connolly, we are not people who are eager to, to say that we are right and wrong and so on and so forth. We just want to study and answer the question. The fact that well, I, I, give you, I give you this fact, then I'll stop. The fact <laughs> is that the IPCC co-chair AR6 by the name of Dr. Pan Mao Chai, okay? he's, a, he's actually a, a thermometer expert also. So he had published on this. He clearly published paper that shows that the urban heat island effect is significant. He quoted us. He credited us for doing some of the good work because we examined very seriously in China record, for example. And in the next coming work on US record, we're going to clean the problem in some sense for the first time in the history. And they have never even do this. Please remember, we got no funding to do this. So later, if I can plug my series uh, Somebody can help us, you know, please donate $5, $10. I don't want to take away from your show, but something like that. We yeah. do this with no money. In that sense, it's, I even doubly proud. That, you know, hey, who the heck? I don't need no money. My wife would not be happy, but I do this because, again, just to make sure that we understand the problem. Okay, mm-hmm. Jay, your turn.
1: The answer to the question, why our government just moves forward in a direction that is totally unsupported by science, is because they know it's never been about science. It's about control. And they were smart enough to figure out if they could convince the country that man's emissions of carbon dioxide were going to have a negative impact, they were going to try to eliminate the use of coal and natural gas and oil, the readily available energy that has brought our life to such a a high level in the past 150 years, they would recommend the replacement of this wonderful fuel by wind and solar that people think the sun and the wind are free. They know that absolutely cannot support our economy. That then puts the government in total control of all energy, which they have to ration to us all, whether an individual, a, a business, or a corporation. The ultimate goal is to take 100% control of our lives. Uh And they do it by fear. The average citizen is not well trained in science. And you have a newspaper, a media that they wholly own, and they simply repeat the lie hundreds of times, literally every day, that fossil fuel is destroying the world. And eventually, They get the government to do away with the further development of fossil fuel and to build wind turbines and solar farms all over the country. We're basically brought back to civilization in the middle of the 19th century, 1850, and they own us. On this radio show, I've told our listeners over and over again, I'm not worried about that happening. In fact, I believe in the midterm elections in November of 2022. They will lose control of the House, and that means they lose control of the entire U.S. budget and we will begin working our way back to take control. But it's never been about science. And in my view, the sad part is that we have so many wonderful scientists like yourself trying to come to the real answers to how climate change works. And while their work is not understood by the enemy, It's used to say, oh, see, nobody really understands it. So it could be that we're destroying the world with the use of fossil fuels. So the whole thing is a ruse and it has nothing whatsoever to do with science.
0: Mm -hmm. On that note, we better go for a commercial break and we'll be right back in a couple of minutes.
4: You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel pack vitamins, uh, looking for better sleep, focus and energy. Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying
2: asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep. With calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support, delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption micro-gel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There was a time when Americans could rely on the Fourth Estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Outloud talk radio. Liberty and justice for all.
1: Your family, how has it been able to withstand the constant attacks that you've been under now for really more than 20 years for having published accurate papers that sort of gore the ox of the enemy trying to scare the public into believing that everything we're doing is destroying life as we know it, when in fact it's the
3: opposition? Well, you know, I'm a relatively, I would say not relative, extremely lucky person. (laughs) I get to do my science. I get to have a very loving family. In fact, during this Saturday presentation, I'll show a drawing of my wife and then even a a handcraft by my daughter. One of the most amazing benefits from this is is in some sense is that I can see, for example, all my children, my two boys and a, a, a girl, and my daughter, tends to absorb some of this uh, essence, this this attitude of mind. For example, never, never, ever give up. Always stick to the truth and try to stay as calm as you can, which I feel most of the time, as you can hear from this interview because I'm naturally <laughs> excited. But then I mean well. I really are passionate. And in that sense, they learn a lot out of this in some sense because They started to go with me in many, many of my uh, conference attending because I enjoy having them around. I can show them around. And we started to go, let's say, summer camp, for example. This one, one of our favorite now that we've been going for five years is Camp Constitution, where I get to speak to kids of their age, which is all in middle school or high school. And they get to learn some of these things themselves, right? So they get to see this thing. You know, it's very beautiful the way I see it. I really try to separate. I often tell them, please, one thing you always remember, you do not listen to to all these things that I say just because I'm your father, Or which means I always stress that I'm trying to teach you some methods of doing science, not to indoctrinate you. So I'm so conscious of that, that Mm -hmm. I I kind of nail it to their brain that they know. In fact, they're so independent that I'm so proud of it. So they would always fact-checking me, things like that, right? It's very, very good. In fact, I even went one year, this year, because my, my son is beginning to be in high school, right? So he, he able to actually help me edit my talk in the sense that from the point of view of a student, so he tell me to calm down. Don't use so many jargon and that kind of thing. So it's, it's really a whole family kind of activities, which I'm very proud of. And I, I really are coping extremely well, except for all this usual thing on human life, right? You know, occasional things about not having precise funding, so on and so forth. But those things, you know, you just, you only need so much in my view. So I'm very happy. I'm doing very, very well, except that one thing that I have to confess, in fact, I don't mind uh, Greenpeace hear this. As you all know that I've been attacked constantly by by many of these activist groups. They even went as far as trying to get FOIA, using the Freedom of Information ad in the United States, to try to get my emails, right, from my workplace. And wow. uh, they have tried many years, until they become successful, I believe, somewhere in 20, 2009 or 2010, they were successful because my workplace choose to collude with the Greenpeace without asking what's the purpose of wanting the, e- the email. I have nothing to hide, by the way. And then so, so on and so forth, so they get to see a lot of my activities and so on and so forth, right? And, but those was, I never took them seriously because I was never worried about it until 2015, February. That becomes serious because my story, the Greenpeace, wrote essentially the whole article for New York Times, the unethical New York Times, to put out articles with their name on it, right? Because New York wow. Times, all of a sudden, it becomes so much prestigious. Greenpeace, who whoever think about Greenpeace, but people don't know what Greenpeace is doing, obviously. But I just only want to say the only thing that did to me was there was a very short moment in 2015 when I was under investigation and all this other stress of a press inquiry, which I usually don't care. Okay. I just don't want to talk to you. I have no time for this. Thank you. <laughs> but, yeah. but they make me doubt. They made me doubt for a very tiny moment that I have harmed the reputation of all my, I have at least a hundred co-authors. If you know, I wrote by now, I can update you at least 110 papers, peer review. And I, I I doubt a moment that by me having been featured as such a corrupted person, I have no doubt that I did nothing wrong. I have nothing to hide. But because of the attention, a lot of my colleagues, when they submitted paper, they all get into trouble. If I can see, actually, I saw, for example, Michael Mann was a, sniffing his nose and uh, shouting at one of my colleagues who presented an invited talk at American Geophysical Union on Global Monsoon, where I was one of the co-authors. He saw my name and he was immediately displeased and started to challenge uh, my, my colleagues, but not on the issues of science, obviously, because he doesn't know much about Global Monsoon, by the way. And then, and then he started to talk very badly about that. This kind of example I don't like, you know, because I, I felt like, oh, I cannot be a, a, such a burden for my colleague. But but I, I, I really are very happy that even all my colleagues that, that have been stressed by because of my reputation. In fact, one of my young colleagues that I work with from China, from Xi'an Institute of Earth Sciences, he's been called into his director office about three times already because he worked with me, write paper with me. But we have published in Nature Geosciences, Earth Science Review, all the like high impact factors, extremely high impact factors journal because we have good quality results, right? Yeah. Well,
1: like, let, I mean, let's focus on that point you just made. Why have so many university academics given up any ethics to buy the lies of the ICCP?
3: It's a good point, uh, Jay. It's, it's IPCC, right? I hope you mean that. But, yes, but I, right. that ICCP, right. I thought it's was uh, International Chinese Communist Party, Communist Party. But IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You know, I, I realized for a long time already something very strange to a person. For example, Hanson. When the Nobel Prize was announced, and many people say Hansen should be awarded Nobel Prize. But you know what? Most people don't know. I do know this fact. He did not create the, the climate model, the GCM General Circulation Model of NASA gis He's just a director who solicited the money. He never write the code. Because my personal colleague, the late Professor Eric Cosmentier of Dartmouth, is the one who wrote the first version of the... Of the ocean component, that me and Eric built climate model, simple one, much simpler than the one, of course, in NASA gives. But then we built a simpler one because we understand the principle. But I just want to make the fact that these people, that they are, in some sense, in my view, they are good scientists, but not that good. You know that certainly not Nobel caliber, but. All of a sudden, they can jump to the front line, beat every Nobel Prize now, right? Because they are so important. Because the society need their attention, the politician and the media, everybody wants their attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can hear even Professor Phil Jones. Movie about Climate Gate is going to come out very soon, October twelfth, featuring him. But he said he never wrote a Fortran code, for example. These are facts. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to insult him, but you know what I mean. Doesn't write a Fortran doesn't mean that he's stupid either. But the point is that they are not doing things. You know what I mean. The point is they didn't do anything fresh or, or something important but they're becoming so self-important this is why the attractiveness of of following being a ship in the ipcc kind of a big big boat everybody go on the thing go on the the, the gravy train you know riding you know you you are it is a gravy train because it's, it is so much easier that you will get the, the funding from that me mm-hmm. and myself and professor david Legates, as soon as we author the 2003 hockey stick paper we wrote a nice proposal to NOAA to try to get a, 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 a little funding, right, to, to do some of these ideas that we have on, on paleo, how to, how to compose it, superpose this uh, regional problem because we want to study local, regional, and all these other perspective. You know what? Our proposal, which anybody can submit, by the way, from any institution, was not even looked at. It was sent <laughs> back. When Dave LeGate is trying to ask why, they won't give you any answer because, again, it's like a you know, total monopoly. They can just decide that you're not going to get it if you're on. The, just think about it. If I'm on the IPCC web train, probably I'll be benefit a lot. I should be able to get all kinds of funding.
0: You know, it's interesting here in Ottawa, there's a senior scientist by the name of Dr. Rod Packwood. He's an Ottawa-based PhD in physics. And when he heard that you were on the show today, here's what he said. He said, my deepest thanks to Willie for fighting the good fight so well, gives hope that science still is being practiced with skill and honor.
3: Very good, thank you, Tom, this is a very pleasant.
1: Willie, what can our listeners say to their friends and colleagues who buy into the lies that they read every day in in the media and hear from left scientists?
3: I would try to say that don't read the headline. Always demand them to show you the data. Even when you look at the data, you have to be careful. For example, the temperature history, right? They would say that the temperature history shows some global warming. We show that it's more cyclical, which means it's warm from 1900 to 1940, and then it cools in the 70s, and then it goes up again. So you know you have more oscillatory kind of behavior. We show that if you just consider a rural station, for example, that already changed the whole paradigm, by the way. So demand evidence. When they say sea level rise, okay, fine, sea level rise. But think about the numbers too. What does the number mean? Two millimeters per year. Okay, four millimeter, they give them two or three, right? I, I believe it's only one millimeter. That's about four to 12 inches per, per century. I mean, these are very, very small amount of numbers, okay? I'm sorry, they say it's important, but no, it's not. The rest of it, the problem is related to Thai and a lot of this man-made management problem that, you know, that had nothing to do with sea level change in some sense. Right, there are many, many aspects. Polar bear, yeah, okay. How many polar bear you want? You want? One time, I even posed the question. They all started to get so angry. I said, "Do you want a billion polar bears? How many polar bears do you want?" <laughs> now we know it's about 30, 30,000, Right, Susan Crawford from uh, from Canada, right, clearly studied this issue very deeply. And my good friend Mitch Taylor from Lakehead University is also one of the my 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 polar bear hero. You know, he just fly there. He just do so many work on polar bear and. He said that this whole thing is corrupted by the polar bear science. It's corrupted Mm -hmm. by this global warming obsession. And Mm -hmm. the normal people should actually look up to alternative view. Uh, uh, We shouldn't call ourselves alternative. We are the majority. So they should look to your web podcast. They should look to Heartland Institute. They can come to my series science and there are many more. Science is not about waving your gold medals. You know, it's about evidence, nothing Mm -hmm. but evidence. It doesn't matter yeah. how beautiful you are, right? It doesn't matter how many gold medal you wear, it's about the evidence. Like this is why it's so much fun for me. That I forgot to, to stress the part of fun for me. Because I really enjoy myself enormously for doing this science, not because I want to poke hole in the results, so on, and so on. it's just that all the results are so obviously weak. That every yeah, sure. little thing I do is an improvement. It's a magic in science, actually. Very, very difficult to achieve this thing in a lot, especially such an old science. That look at this. I, I asked the question, how does the seasonal climate evolve? In fact, one of the oldest problems in even weather forecasting business is actually seasonal prediction. They have never got this thing handle. So I asked the question, do they prescribe the orbital forcings correctly? Because we know the season uh, ever suddenly controlled by all these other planets and the, and the sun itself. So that's why I revisited the issue with my good colleague uh, Rodolfo Sionso from Argentina. So we produced the first solution in 2017, by the way. So it's already almost four or five years old. And this is a solution that really, I would say, completely make all the solutions from IPCC that is using, based on Berger, Andrew Berger that I mentioned, completely outdated. Because Berger don't even consider the moon. They just treat that the earth and the, uh, and the moon is one, one body. Okay? And we resolve the whole thing. Earth and moon is separate entity. We can clearly show the tidal influence in, and in, uh, uh, there's a lot of lunar influence imprint, in and a lot of this phenomenon that we see, even in the distribution of sunlight. So I'm just telling you that, look, it makes me happy in the sense that a lot of this simple p- problem that people keep saving, saying that is soft is actually not even touch. And mm-hmm. me and my colleague just came in, we produced this paper. I think we actually now I can claim that I'm the first guy who solved this problem. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Right? So And then they want to say that I'm a stupid guy and corrupted and don't do it. No, no, no. Please go read the paper. Yeah. <laughs> we well, when, I'm,
1: when I'm speaking uh, in the panel in Las Vegas on Saturday, it'll be by Zoom because I have uh, yes. COVID, but uh, I'm going to make the point that while I won't argue that man has a impact on his climate, it is not significant in any economic way. And the world has been spending literally billions of dollars a day trying to undo whatever man's role is and they don't even understand it. So I think it's wonderful that scientists like yourself and your colleagues are working to pin down science. That's what it's all about. But I think it would be important if the public understood that it really does not play uh, a role in the economy of our country to a point where you take tax money to spend on some of the science that is not relevant to meaningful numbers. What do you say to that?
3: Yes, I I totally agree. It's a very tragic situation that somehow we put ourselves in now. And unfortunately, the the forces of politics is just beyond my my humble ability to even comprehend. I, I can understand a lot of this craziness, but then I just simply don't know how to stop it. I would like it to be stopped, obviously. I would like the funding be properly appropriated to proper studies. I would actually say, like I say, people often ask me, how many of this scientific paper is worth publishing? I would say at least 80% of this paper that is published this day are not worth publishing. Only 20% are new. The rest of it is just junk. In terms mm-hmm. of funding, oh my God, funding. I would say yeah, very, very little worth funding. They are kind of work. It's just so bad because it's just basically, look, Telling the, the funding agency, look, I, I want to change. A, for example, even Michael Mann claimed he's a modeling expert because he claimed he modeled some, uh, how the leaf responds to some biology system to include a component. He even got funding from NSF and so on and so forth. He even got funding from a museum to, to do polar bear work, he claimed. I mean, these are really not work. Excuse me, should you be honest enough not to take the money? I mean, I don't know. I All I know is that, yes, the, the whole thing is so crazy now. Man, clearly, I mean, clearly we have impact on, on the, our local environment, except it's when it goes anything bigger than 100 miles, I think it's becoming very difficult to, to justify, especially from this, this, what you call gas of life, or CO2. This is such a tragic situation that we would really work so hard to destroy something that is so valuable. And in fact, we call it gas of life for, no, for a very, very good reason, that it is true. It is scientifically true that all biological systems really, really love CO2, including us, I guess, if you can think of us as a symbiotic kind of a relation, that, that they could twist these things so far out that, that they can turn a CO2 into a satanic gas, right? So, <laughs> God bless. In that sense, I, I don't know how to answer this question very precisely, Jay.
1: So, well, I wonder- think there's one way to explain it to the audience, you and I worked some years ago to uh, develop a list of variables that quite obviously should be playing a role in how the earth develops a particular uh, temperature. And there are just so many that we do not understand. But one I thought would be obvious that most people would think we thoroughly understand. And we don't really thoroughly understand the role of clouds in determining Uh, the temperature of the planet. Could you speak to that for a moment?
3: Uh, Yes, this one I do have some very unique insight because you know what? I don't follow all the rules. (laughs) I study evidence. One of the most interesting aspects of cloud is, this is part of my, actually, it can be, let's call it controversy, but it's not much controversy to me. Like, I'm uh, not in favor of the galactic cosmic ray cloud relation because the evidence is not there. But Cloud on a very short term clearly act as some kind of feedback right to the system in the sense that you know when you have cloud the radiation budget changes right instantaneously in some sense right that you have more low cloud for example then more sunlight is reflected so the system immediately receives less sunlight so less energy input to the system so one should study the response to that short short response and cloud as we know <laughs> it's changed from sizes of a microphysics, which is micron or nanometer, 10 to the minus 9 meter, to size as large as, let's say, kilometers, isn't it? And not only that, they are distributed from equator all the way to even high-latitude like Arctic region on all kinds of timescale. One of the unique insights I have is basically that Cloud May act has some kind of a forcing immediately because it changed the climate system instantaneously on a short timescale. But on a long time scale, like multi-decadal to centennial, it could actually add as mere response to, let's say, the flow of equator to whole kind of a heat flux or moisture. Okay. So cloud completely are controlled by all this variable because it does depend on the amount of moisture available, right? And the temperature gradient on vertically, right, to form the cloud formation. So it has a very strange kind of dual role. So it requires a deeper thinking and deeper even if you want to analyze a the theoretical framework to do this. So cloud is very mysterious indeed. And, and sometimes this is what a lot of geologists call cloud, geologists especially, because they could never get the imprint of cloud on the rocks, right? But mm-hmm. but the, the insight from this multi-decadal stuff is actually from, from, three, from three rings. But you're not analyzing the tree ring in terms of the growth. You, multi- you analyze it in terms of the, the, what you call the stable isotope of 13C. You know, as you know, carbon can have 12C and carbon-14, which is the radio carbon that decay very quickly, right? But the carbon-13 is very stable. It stays there forever as long as the age of the universe. But the, the amount of that are very sensitive to sunlight radiation. So that immediately transferred to cloud cover around the region. So indeed, this, this kind of new study especially you need to find the right location, right place, to do this analysis, obviously. Unfortunately, now all of that belongs to high-latitude regions, so we still have no insight what happened in in equator or tropical region, right? The only thing that those people are crazy enough to even study what you call the thick tree, the very, very strong tree that doesn't even form rings. So that becomes another complication. A lot of this, magical thinking people thinking that this is the solution now for understanding equator or tropical dynamics. So I take a more cautionary approach because these people are simply trying to sell to NSF, getting more of this funding that I don't think that is going to come true. This is why it's very dangerous. All kinds of this kind of thing that is not straightforward. But the bottom line is cloud is something that we must study. But I'm happy to report that indeed it can change its behavior, its, its role, that being a forcing into a feedback just because of what timescale you're looking at, because certain time averaging makes the thing behave very differently. So in that sense, you can say that my serious focus is not on very short-term fast timescale dynamics. I'm focusing on multi-decadal to centennial timescale. That's where I felt that a lot of my physical processes and my theoretical insights is, is more meaningful. So I can contribute a lot more faster and in, in that direction. So I'll make more progress. That's In science, it's always like that. You have only limited time on this planet. So you better find a problem that can be solved rather than all this endless quibble, right? When Linzen, yeah. by the way, produced his iris hypothesis, if anybody even read half a sentence that he said in his 2001 famous paper, he actually said that even at that time, he doesn't think that there is an adequate satellite data to test his idea, which is true. And he, at that time, he only put the Japanese meteorological agencies kind of thing that have very important time cadence that is up to, I think, five or six minutes. Even that is already too slow, okay, and cover certain regions. And he mentioned some of that, that point, which I think Linzen is always the master of this area, right? I mean, unfortunately, people also think that he's a crack, which is really sad, saddened my heart. I don't mind myself being labeled some kind of bad guy or whatever, but Linzen... Harper and Dyson, I would not allow those people to mention them like that. Or, or Chris Essex. Yeah. These four really touches my heart because they are truly good. Chris Essex, for example, is trying to formulate something called a climate theory that you can reject. No one has ever had a climate theory. That's the problem because the, the boundary between meteorology and climate is not understood. Nobody knows what is this. World Climate Meteorological Organization like to say that it's textbook it's so easy. You just take 30 years average. Oh my yeah. God, I always laugh when I hear things like this because you know why? It's an embarrassment. It's a, it's a statement that you can make perhaps to reduce the complexity of the problem to explain to kids what I call cartoon sign. Cartoon signs is okay. It doesn't yeah. mean it's all bad, but the problem is that when you take a cartoon sign, you're trying to turn it into some kind of big kind of hammer that you're going to slam all of these skeptics around you are highly mistaken because you haven't understand the science, and many of us are clever enough to know that you are actually you are talking nonsense. You know yeah. what I mean? This is oh, the kind that... of problem that I was never intimidated by that sort of bullying technique because they are actually doesn't know what they are talking about. This is why I think Jay, me, and you think alike. They are they are somewhat embarrassing, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Indeed. On that note, you know we'll, we'll have to wrap up. We could we could talk all day, Willie. So this is Tom Harrison, Dr. Jay Lear, signing out with our guest, the Happy Warrior. I would say, Dr. Willie Soon.